welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the evening service of Sunday the 12th of June 2011, entitled Messiah Forsaken, Then Exalted. And the Bible reading is Psalm 22. Here's Brother Chris Mansfield. If you're turning your Bibles to uh, Psalm 22, just before I start... Steve's told you a little bit about yesterday, and Pete's told you a little bit about yesterday, and Malcolm's told you a little bit about yesterday, so it's my turn now. Um, There was lots of miraculous ways in which the Lord had brought Jewish people into the paths of these people, people just bundling loads of Bibles together and just having the right amount to give out. Um, If you can remember, I was talking to, there was a few Irish people there, trying to distribute um, the Hebrew Bibles in Ireland. And one of the guys does fly regularly into Luton Airport, and he regularly leaves a, um, a Hebrew New Testament in the, um, in the Luton Chapel. So if you can just bear in mind to pray for this Bible that's going to be regularly left. Luton is very Muslim. So if you just pray that this Bible gets regularly into um, a man or a lady's hands that's Jewish. And another one was um, Roberta was mentioning the Ben-Hur man, and he's stuck in my mind. And this man, it's kind of relevant to what we're going to be looking at as well. This man had got no idea about Jesus or the cross. He was a very um, Jewish man, but he had saw Ben-Hur on the TV. And when Roberta was talking to him, did say that it did touch him when Jesus was on the cross and the water, if you remember, we've watched this a lot in our house, it's one of Martha's favourites. Uh, the water gushed down, didn't it? And the leper, the mom and the daughter's got leprosy and the, the blood and the water comes and heals them. And um, it says that it did touch him, that part of the film, and Roberta was saying that Jesus is real and these kind of things. And he did have a Hebrew uh, New Testament. So if you can remember to pray for the Ben-Hur manners, which she described him as. So that's uh, what was going on yesterday. If we can look at Psalm 22, um, Pete had a bit of a tear in his eye this morning. You forgive me if the same happens with me uh, as I bring this message to you. It's not a um, psalm that we can take and lightly, and um, it's very solemn, but as we will go through it, um, the Lord prevails. So Psalm 22. Um, I don't, we, not, we don't normally stand on an evening, but if we can just stand for this psalm, because it is quite a um, solemn psalm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not in the night season, and I'm silent. But thou art holy, thou that inhabit the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. I am a worm, sorry, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of a man, despised of the people. All that see me laugh to scorn. They shoot out their lips, they shake their heads, saying, He trusted in the Lord that he would de- deliver him. Let him um, deliver him, seeing the delight in him. For thou art he that took me out of the womb, thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb, thou art my God, from my mother's belly. Be near, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. 
Many bulls have compressed me. Strung bulls of Bashan have beset me. They gape open, they gape upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lions. I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it melts in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potshed. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and thou hast brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have compressed me, compassed me. They assemble all the wicked, having closed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part among them, they part my garments among them, and cast lots upon my vesture. But be thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horn. They have heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will deliver thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation. Will I praise thee? <clears throat> Yet that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all ye seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the afflictions of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard, My praise shall go, shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of nations shall worship before him. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among the nations. All that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All that go down to dust shall bear before him and none shall keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him, it shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness upon a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. Please be seated. <clears throat> psalm 22 is, you might say, one of the most famous messianic psalms. Um, you could say that it's a, another psalms are poetic. But if you read Isaiah 53, uh, 53, it's like a, another poetic commentary on what we've just read, even though Isaiah uh, was written earlier. The, the psalm is split into two parts, which when you read it, you've really got to look at it to find out where the break is between the two parts of the psalm. The first part of the psalm is divided into um, the events of the first coming. The second part of the psalm is more to do with the Lord's exaltation and second coming. First, I'll deal with the suffering of the Messiah, and then later on we will look at the dealing of the millennial exaltation of the Lord. So we look in verse 1, and we've got a famous saying, and the Lord cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And um, he cried out, didn't he, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Now, you, the first question that we must ask ourselves is why did he say these words? We must approach this psalm with uttermost reverence and respect, for the cry from Jesus is a cry from the cross from Golgotha. The good shepherd here is giving his life for the sheep. He quoted the words after three hours of darkness upon the cross. During these three hours, 
the entire wrath of God because of the sins of Israel and because of the sins of the world were laid upon the shoulders upon him. And this is why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now everywhere else in the New Testament, some 170 times, the Lord, well not the Lord, Jesus always refers to his father as Lord or Abba as father. So why now is he calling him God? Why now is he changing this constant parental relationship with God to a cry of my God? And it's because of sin. Jesus held a very close parental relationship with the Father. I don't want to go into the Trinity because it'd take a better man to explain the Trinity. But the Lord left all his heavenly glory. He became a man and he did the will of the Father in every aspect of his life. He was fully God. He was fully man. So the Lord Jesus had this parental relationship with his Father and some 170 times he called him Father or Lord. The point in which he cries this out is the point after the three hours of darkness upon the cross and God is acting as Jesus' judge because of sin. So the parental relationship has been forsaken and God now is looking at him and judging him because of sin. No sin of his own, the sin of Israel and mankind. So that is why the cry goes out, my God, instead of Abba. That is the first thing that we need to look at that the cry was my God. The weight of sin upon the Saviour was heavy to the point where this relationship was broken. If we sin, our relationship with God can be broken. As Even as Christians, we can call him as our Father, yet if sin blocks that relationship with him, he's acting in judge over our sin. So, you have, Pete mentions this a lot, you have two types of people in the world. You've got those that are saved and those that are lost. If you're lost today, God is sitting in judgment over your sin. He's wanting you to come in salvation, to salvation, to this cross and believe. If you have come and you know him as Abba, as Father, as Lord, because of this sacrifice, you can draw close to the Lord because of the Lord's sacrifice and you can call him Abba and Father. But we must ask, why was the Lord forsaken? Why was these cries going out? Why was Jesus left there in this anguished cry? The Saviour, Jesus, was literally and completely forsaken by God. Up to this point from the cross, he'd been the, the object of the Father's delight. Every aspect of the Father's will he did. If you remember in the garden, he said, not my will, but your will be done. He sweat drops of blood. There was deep anguish upon our Lord. But now he's forsaken. There's no delight. He's been abandoned. Perfect Jesus, who did the unfailing will of God, experienced terrible desolation of being cut off from God. Why, why? was holy, sinless saviour, the son of God. Why did he suffer so much of God's concentrated wrath, tasting 
the pangs of hell for us. Why? It was because it was the, indeed it was the Father's delight for him to pay that price for sin. We ask ourselves, why did the Father turn away? Why did he look away? Why did he choose not to answer his cry? And if we read in verse 3, it says those four words there, what well, thou art holy. The reason that God the Father turned away from Jesus was because he's holy. He's holy in every aspect that he is God. He's just and he's righteous. God must punish sin wherever he finds it. He can't wink at sin. It's impossible for God to look over sin. Although Jesus hadn't got any of his own sin, he took upon himself the sins of the world. He willingly assumed the responsibility to pay that penalty for all the world's sin. The world is indebted to sin. At the cross, Jesus put that charge of sin to his account. He paid mankind's sin, mankind's sin debt in full. At this point, when the Lord was forsaken, he was left alone to bear sin. God the Father's righteousness demanded sin to be punished. God could not look upon it. God deliberately unleashed all the fury of his righteousness upon his own son. We know he was innocent. He was that innocent victim. And he was fiercely tormented by God's divine judgment. For me and for you, he was forsaken. For me and for you, he was abandoned. For me and for you, he was tormented. For me and for you, he was punished. We might have a very light view of sin. We get into a habit of practicing sin and we get into a we just seem to fall into sin. We don't want to, but we fail and we fall into sin. And we do repent. Sin as a Christian can sometimes be very easy to us. We desire not to sin, but we fail. When we grasp and fully understand the punishment that God the Father laid upon his son because of the sin that we have just committed, it should provoke us to walk more worthy. It should provoke us to be more holy. And it should provoke us to repent at even the slightest glimpse of a sin. When we see what the Lord went through in those abandoned times when he was on the cross. If we just read again verse 4 and 5. Now the Lord focuses on the patriarchs. Our fathers trusted in thee, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and they were delivered. They, they trusted in thee, and were not confounded. That is what we've read. Jesus here, in the midst of this torment, 
He's reminding God the Father that the Father's trusted in, in him. What Jesus is trying to say is the patriarch's father trusted in thee. Their sins were great. You answered them. Why have you not answered me? Why? God had delivered these people in spite of their constant sin and their cries, just like Jesus cried, my God, Israel's history, they constantly cried. God instantly sometimes answered. God answered sometimes in a while, but they were never forsaken. They were never abandoned. God was always with them. So here, God the Father, God the Son is reminding God the Father of the patriarchs and how that they were delivered. The patriarchs sin were many. They were often wayward, but God never forsook them. There was always that remnant within them that wanted to repent, sometimes repenting on behalf of the whole nation, sometimes finding sin and idols within the camp, sometimes judgment fell, but God always delivered his people. But the sentence of abandonment was left for this helpless lamb, left on the cross. There was no answer for our saviour at this point. The heavens were silent. If we read in verse 8, it says there that he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him, let him deliver, deliver him, seeing his delight in him. Even the people that were surrounding the cross, they were mocking Jesus. So now you can imagine Jesus was in, a, in the, it's unbelievable the amount of pain that he was in. You can imagine him going from a moment of reality to a moment of prayer, to a moment of consciousness, to a moment of unconsciousness. And it's if within the first part of the psalm he's drifting between dying and living. He's in the land of the living and looking at the people and then he's in the midst of severe pain and maybe faint for a while and going to a state of prayer. And we can see this as we look. So now he's, he maybe has, has come around and he's looking and he sees these people below him. The Lord was lifted up on the cross. The people were saying that he had trusted in God. They weren't saying this in a positive way. They were mocking him. They were saying that huh, he trusted in God. He was God's delight. Let God deliver him then. They were mocking from the foot of the cross. We read in Matthew 27 and 39 to 43 that exact account. They mocked our Saviour from the midst of the, the foot of the cross. You might put it this way. He was rejected by the people because of righteousness. He was abandoned by the Father because of sin. If now we go down to verse 9 to 11, if we just look at that, we've already read it, and it says that now the Lord maybe drifts back into a state of this fever, this pain that's just unbearable. And he goes into maybe a state of prayer again, and he starts reminding the Father of his infancy. He reminds him how 
that when he was a young baby and he suckled on his mother's breast that God kept him from Herod or delivered him from that time when Herod sought to kill him. God sent him to Egypt. So now he's, he's in this state now of reminding God, trying to find an answer of this, why has God abandoned me? Jesus at this point turns away from the mocking crowd that are below him and reminds God, the Father, of those fragile days of his infancy. It was God, the Father, who had sustained him in that early life. The son now is on the basis of that parental relationship. He's crying out to God and saying, deliver me. Deliver me from this sin. Christ appeals to God to draw near in this hour of crushing, separation and this trial because of sin. God chooses not to listen just yet. In verse 12 to 13, it says, Many balls have compressed me. Strong balls of Bashan have beset me. They gape open with their mouths as a roaring, as a ravening and roaring lion, and were poured out like water. So now he looks down again from the cross and he looks at the Jewish people. They've had their way, they've put him on that cross, and they were hateful towards him. The crowd of the Israelites around the bottom of the cross were hateful towards our Saviour. And Jesus is looking at them and he's saying that they're like strung balls of Bashan. They're like roaring, raging lions. Bashan was a district of Jordan and it was known for its very strong cattle, for its pasture land. And the cattle there were big and strong and well fatted. And the pasture was lush and rich. And this was the land just before the Jewish people were going to cross over from Jordan into the promised land. And if you remember, they said, why do we need to go? The land here is good. They must obey God. But that's where they was. They were looking at the cattle. The cattle was, were getting big. And they were thinking, why do we need to obey God? We'll stay where we are, but God, as we now said, you must go over the Jordan, and we know the story. But if you turn to um, Amos 4.1, it says something there, Cain, or Cain, of Bashan. Amos here is referring later on in Israel's history in regards to not the cross, but after Psalm 22. He's describing Israel there as a luxury-loving cows of Bashan. Cain, or coin, I think it's got some German roots. I'm not a linguist at all, but it does refer to cattle. It might even be German for cattle. So there, Amos is, is even there reminding them that they have fatted cattle, that they're loving the good things of this world. So Jesus here, the phrase, balls of Bashan, is reserved for the Israelites, Jesus' own countrymen. And they were waiting to close in for the kill. Jesus is also saying that they were like ravening lions, roaring lions. Jesus was dying there in their place because of sin, and they were pouncing on him 
as an innocent lamb. If we look at verse 14 to 18, it says there, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot shed, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me, and the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them, they cast lots upon my vesture. So, as we've read there, Jesus, as well as the separation from, from the Father and the sin upon his shoulders, he's also in the midst of severe pain. He's experiencing excruciating physical agony as well as the sins of the world upon his shoulders, as well as the Father abandoning him, as well as the mocking crowd. So now we're going to look at what the psalm says about the agony, the physical agony that the Lord went through. The first part it says there, I am poured out like water. I believe this is emphasizing excessive sweat. If you remember in the garden, blood and sweat were mingled in the garden. And it says there in verse 14, I'm poured out like water. I've uh, read a little bit on excessive pain and you can go into a, a pain of fever. The pain can be so excruciating that you go into a fever which will cause excessive sweating, which will cause dehydration. And this, I believe, is what is happening to the Saviour. He's experiencing being poured out like water. Sweat and blood are gushing out of his body. The next part that we look at, it says that all my bones are out of joint. After the nailing of Jesus to the cross on the ground, and in spite of some of the stigmata that you see within some of the Catholic people, in Hebrew teaching, the hand is from the fingertip to the elbow. The, the nails would have gone through the wrist, between the wrist bone, because obviously through the hand they would just rip out. So all these stigmata that you see, um, these normally ladies that have this stigmata, it's not even biblical. But Jesus would have been laid down on that cross. The Roman soldiers would have nailed those nine inch rough cut nails through his wrists, right through nerve endings and through that place where there's a lot of blood flowing. And he would have been nailed down there on the cross, but we're focusing now on dislocation. Jesus would have been raised up with ropes, as well as the other men that were crucified. There'd be a big slot in the ground or a big hole, and that cross would drop a metre, two metres down into a slot. This dropping of this heavy weight would cause many dislocations to the crucified person. So Jesus here is saying, all my bones are out of joint. Jesus' shoulders would have come out of joint. Lots of his ribcage would come apart. Just unbelievable. 
This is what the psalm is reminding us. There's a very important note here that a dislocation is not a break. If you remember in John 19:34, the Roman soldier pierced Jesus' side with a spear. They wanted to speed up the uh, crucifixions because of the Passover. Normally, they would break the legs of the crucified people. This would cause them not to be able to push off that little step to get breath, and they would suffocate, suffocate on their own blood, basically. They wouldn't have the strength to pull themselves up from their arms because we just said both shoulders were possibly dislocated. So it's very important that it does say that Jesus' bones were dislocated, but none of them were broken. Jesus didn't have his legs broken. He was already dead when the Roman soldier came to him and he put a spear in his side instead, if you like. None of Messiah's bones could have been broken. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in the sacrificial system, none of the sacrificial bones could be broken. Jesus is our Passover lamb. If you turn to Exodus 12:46, this is in the middle of the angel of the Lord coming and killing the firstborn sons of uh, Egypt. And it says there that you can't break the, lamb, the lamb's bones that you're going to shed his blood. Jesus is directly fulfilling this prophecy. Please remember that a dislocation is not a break. If uh, Cherry was here, she'd back me up. I'm not a doctor, I'm a plumber. But I know there's a difference. I know that scripture can't be violated. And if we turn to Psalm 34, verse 20, God says that he's going to keep, keepeth all the bones, and not one of them shall be broken. I'm mentioning this because Jewish people say Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah. It says in this psalm that his bones were dislocated. But we've just read a dislocation is not a break. None of the Saviour's bones could have been broken. Not one. God said he was going to look after every bone. And this spear put into our Saviour's side was a direct fulfilment that none of those bones should be broken. So um, you might come across this with your, uh, your evangelism, personal evangelism. Um, Psalm 34.20 basically says that none of the bones could be broken. If we go down, um, it says that the heart of the Saviour was like wax. It says it melted within the midst of his bowels. You might say Jesus' heart melted within him like wax. Jesus' heart was broken, even ruptured. And the evidence for this was when the Roman spear went into his side, blood and water came out. This is evidence of a ruptured heart. The Saviour's heart was broken for us. If we go down and carry on looking down, it says, My strength is dried up like a pot shed. Jesus tasted the dust of death. I don't know whether Steve saw any of these potsheds in Israel, but I can imagine that they're very dry places. Maybe the old, those of you who have been to Israel 
I can imagine that they could bake their pots in the sunshine. We're from the dust, aren't we? We go to the dust. Jesus now is tasting that dry dust of death for us. And he's saying that he's dried up like a pot shed. And then we go on and it says, My tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and you've brought me to the dust of death. So Jesus' tongue was sticking to the inside of his mouth because of excessive thirst. Jesus experienced thirst, and as we said, his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth or to his jaw. After six hours on the cross and three hours of those in darkness, Jesus thirsted. But I believe this is more than a physical thirst. Within those three hours of darkness, Jesus suffered the outpouring of God's wrath. You might say he tasted hell itself. Within hell, there's fire, there's pain, there's darkness. For I believe the worst thing that there is in hell is that God's not going to be there. Jesus tasted this separation from God. <clears throat> and he said, I thirst. If you remember Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, this rich man was in hell for just a short while and he also said, I thirst. Jesus is saying these words reflecting on extreme suffering, of pain, of hell, which he experienced by hanging on the cross for us. So he did thirst physically, but I believe it's more of a spiritual abandonment from God that causes him <clears throat> for his excessive thirst. They pierce, in verse 16, <clears throat> they pierced my hands and my feet. If we look in Zechariah 12.10, and we'll just read that. And I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look upon me whom they have pierced, and thou shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and shall be bitter for him as one is bitterness for his firstborn. We've got a reference there to him being pierced. Now the pierced reference in Zechariah means to thrust through. This is more referring to the Roman spear that was thrust into his side. If we look um, at the scripture that we're looking at in the Psalms, the word for piercing there is more like when you get your ears pierced. The actual object that does the piercing stays in place, unlike in Zechariah, where the object was put in and removed back out. The Hebrew word there is emphasizing the fact that the piercing object stays in place. This is exactly what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. Nails pierced his hands and his feet in direct fulfillment of this psalm. Now, in verse 16, some wish to translate this psalm. It's mainly Jewish theologians wish to translate this part of the psalm as, instead of they pierce my hands and my feet, as a lion, my hands and my feet, or a lion has mauled my hands and feet. They base this on a misunderstanding of the Masoretic text. And they are wanting it to be that way 
because obviously as Jewish unsaved theologians they don't want any of the biblical prophecy to be exact so they are wanting it to be taken away from fulfilling scripture in regards to the Messiah and trying to apply it that David's hands were mauled by a lion but as we know there's nowhere in scripture that even David's hands are mauled by a lion um, the Septuagint that Jesus quoted from regularly and the disciples even quoted from would render the piercing instead of a lion as mauled and when they translated the King James they were very careful into translating it properly even though the Masoretic text could be translated that way they prayed and understood that it was more to do with a piercing of a, an object rather than anything to do with animals while it was true that David um, or the Holy, or Holy Spirit within scripture does use um, types of animals to describe Jesus's persecutors that we've looked at balls we looked at lions um, there's a reference to unicorns I'll just um, I don't know whether you've read that and thought why is unicorns mentioned in the Bible it's basically another reference to balls um, when they first um, there's a, an animal called an ibex and it's like a large bull-like animal and it's got one very well it's got two very long spike-like looking horns and from a distance it does look like it's coming out from the middle of its nose but when you get very close to it you can see that there's two horns and so that, even that reference there is referring to the balls of Bashan or the horns of strong balls so the context of this psalm is pointing to the fact that the violent animals always refer to the Israelites the persecuting Gentiles the innocent victim of the lamb is always replied to the Savior none of these so the context of the psalm takes us away from the lion being applied to Jesus at this point and, and it applies it to the um, Jewish people that were uh, persecuting him I'm mentioning this because of if ever we come across any Jewish people if they've read this they will bring this up if we mention this psalm that it's a mistranslation it's not a mistranslation God has kept his word and they've got it right and that's what we read another um, aspect of Jesus's severe pain it says that um, I might tell all my bones they look at me and stare upon me if you remember before the cross Jesus was given a scourging Jesus is basically saying that his bones are protruding because of dislocation and he can count his bones as we as we have said um, just a moment ago the action of the cross falling down in its place would have caused these bones to be dislocated but when Jesus was whipped by them Roman soldiers if you remember he had a hundred lashes less one that on its own in some cases was a death sentence they used the cat and nine tails Jesus would have had his hands lifted above his head the cat and nine tails would be whipped against his back and as Steve said this morning by his stripes we are healed and we thank God that through them stripes upon his back that we are healed from our sin 
But you can imagine the, the end of the whip wrapping round the saviour and pulling from the front of his ribcage. First it would remove skin, then it would remove muscle, exposing bone. So Jesus is there, he's looking down, and he's saying that he can count even his own bones because of the cross, because of what he paid for the price for sin. Now we look at the Roman soldiers dividing the Saviour's garments. In verse 18, Jesus was naked on the cross. These garments were on the, on the foot of the cross. Jesus was lifted up in a, with no clothes, but these garments were there on the ground, just at the foot of the cross. And it said that they casted lots for the garments of our Saviour. Now, you might think that that is just a coincidence, you know, they may have, this might have been a regular recurrence for those people, those Roman soldiers, you know, they were practised people in capital punishment. And in um, Matthew 12, 35 and Mark 15, 24, Luke 23, 34, and if we read in John 19, 23 to 24, it says there, this is exactly what the Roman soldiers did. It says they cast lots for his garment. Then the Roman soldiers, when they had crucified him, they took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat, and the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rent it or tear it, but let us cast lots for it. Whom shall, shall it be, that the scripture might be fulfilled? They parted my raiment among themselves, and for my vesture they did cast lots. This is a direct fulfillment of prophecy. They quickly and literally fulfilled this prophecy. Remember the Psalms was written hundreds of years before what had actually happened, and now these things are coming to pass. But now we go to Jesus again trying to implore God for his presence. If we read from 19 to 21 again, it says, But thou art far from me, O Lord, my strength, to help me, deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog, save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard, my, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorn. Here Jesus is again trying to ask God for his deliverance, for his presence to come. Jesus is imploring God to assist him. Just one time he's saying, come Lord. He's asked to be delivered from the sword and the power of the dog. These two sayings refer to the Roman, Roman Gentiles that were there. The sword being symbolic of governmental power. If you want to make a note of Romans 13, 4, that all bear that out. The government here was Roman, as we know. The Jewish government was stoning. They would stone. It was only the Roman government that could do this form of punishment through crucifixion. They had that power, that power of capital punishment. And the dogs that are referred there are uh, to the actual Roman soldiers that actually did the crucifixion. And if you remember in Matthew 15, 26, where the lady's imploring Jesus to come to the Gentiles, and she says, even the dogs eat those crumbs that fall 
So the Jews commonly use this phrase as dogs towards Gentiles. And Jesus is here, he's asking God to be delivered from the Roman government, to be delivered from the cross, to be delivered from these dogs. <clears throat> if we look at verse 21, this refers back to the Jewish people. They plotted with, um, amongst themselves. And in John 19, 7, it says there that we have a law, and, and according to our law, in short, to die. In verse 21 also, we have the words of Jesus saying, For thou hast heard me. This is the point where the psalm is broken. From the suffering of our Saviour because of sin, from the severe pain that he was in, from that separation because of sin. In verse 21, Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me, and deliver me from the horns of the unicorns. So, we've considered the Lord's crucifixion. I've had a lump in my throat, as you may have been able to tell. It's very solemn. If we turn to Hebrews 12.3, it says there that we must consider the cross. For considering him that endured such contradiction of sinners ought against him, lest ye be weary and faint in your minds. So we've considered that point in which he was placed before sinners. This scripture says in Hebrews 12.3, if you read the context, that we must every now and again consider the crucifixion and Jesus' death. And whenever things are going bad, whenever, you know, we have some bad times on this earth, and we might be going, getting faint, we might be getting weary. We should consider what the Lord went through and get it in context. The suffering the cross will bring all our problems into its proper context. But now, as we've said, the psalm now breaks away from this crucifixion. The Father now has heard his cry in verse 21. For thou hast heard me. He breaks away from the cross. And now we turn. Jesus ex ex exchanged the cross for a crown. The Lord had heard his cry. Now the Saviour is being exalted from this point in verse 22. We're going to go forward from the Saviour's death from the Saviour's resurrection, even past the church age. We're in the church age now. I'm looking forward to that uh, time of the Gentiles to be up, that time when the rapture is going to come, when God's favour is going to go back towards his people. But we're in the church age now. We're now transported past that point. The Lord has returned to reign as king. The remnant of the faithful Jews have entered into the millennium, and now Jesus is ready to testify to that remnant of Jews about the faithfulness of God in answering his prayer from the cross. Jesus praises God in the midst of the congregation. And it says that in verse 22. Whenever we read, not always, but whenever we read the midst of the congregation, nine times out of ten, it's referring to the millennial reign of our Saviour. Not always, but most times, 
So there we've got a glimpse of him reigning from the millennium. Verse 23 gives us the answer to what Jesus will say to that remnant Jews when he testifies to them of God's faithfulness of hearing his cry from the cross. In verse 23, it says that they must fear the Lord. This is the remnant of the Jewish people. God is testifying to them within the millennium. They must fear him, they must praise him, and they must glorify him. And the reason is found for their praise in verse 24. Thou hast not disappointed nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. So Jesus was abandoned. Jesus was forsaken. But God did hear. Not at that point, but he did hear. God heard those cries from dark Calvary. God did not despise the suffering, nor did he permanently hide his face from Jesus. God the Father heard the cries of our Saviour. Now God has highly exalted him. And as we read in Philippians 2, 9 to 11, we're going to read that. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and in giving him the name which is above every name, that name, sorry, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow of the things in heaven and the things in earth and the things under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Lord now is exalted as King. The cross is behind him. He's testifying to these Jewish remnant people of God's faithfulness of hearing his cry. He's telling them that they need to fear God, that they need to praise him, and they need to glorify him. So the next six verses are going to describe those ideal conditions that are going to prevail during the peace, prosperity, and safety of the millennial kingdom. If we just go through quickly, because time is going fast, it says the poor or the meek will be satisfied. Within the millennial kingdom, poverty will be banished. It also says that all that seek God, God will pronounce a blessing upon them, and he will say, live forever. Verse 27, it says there that within the millennium, they'll remember. There'll be a worldwide revival. revival. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn. If we look in Revelation, we'll see that there's 144,000 Jewish virgin evangelists that will go out in the midst of this millennial kingdom and they will point people back to the crucifixion. What Christ did at Calvary, and it says that they'll turn. And we know that to turn means to repent. They will come and repent. So there is going to be a worldwide revival in spite of what people say that revival's coming. It is coming, but it's going to be in the context of the millennial kingdom. We can have revival around this church, but I don't think there's going to be worldwide revival until Christ reigns from on, upon high. So we've got that in verse um, 27, that they're going to turn. God is going to send them out. He's going to call them back to their saviour. It says in verse 28 that he's going to have worldwide dominion over the earth. 
This is Christ reigning as king, glorified in his body. We're going to be glorified also saints, with him, reigning with him. The cross is now past, and we're going to be ruling and reigning with our saviour. In verse 29 it says that even the people that don't choose the message of salvation, that they're going to go down to the dust. This is very important. People think, and we'll just read it. All they that are fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All that go down to the door shall bear before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. Within the millennial kingdom, people are going to die. We're going to be in our new bodies. The church will be in its new body, but there's going to be death within the millennium. And some people find that hard to understand. But these people here are being brought before the Saviour to give homage to him, even in spite of the fact that they don't necessarily believe that he is the Saviour. They, they will be made to worship him. Even the people that choose not the message of salvation will go to him. If you're not even saved or reject Christ as King, you will still have to bow the knee and worship him. But this won't keep your soul alive. It says that you'll still go down to the dust. Worship will not save you. Only turning from sin saves. Now, if we turn to Isaiah 65, verse 20, if we first of all just look, glance at verse 17, behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. So the context was in the millennial reign of our Saviour. Verse 20 says, There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not fulfilled the days. For the child shall not die a hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. So within the millennium, there's going to be no children, no infant mortalities, but you're going to be given... 100 years to come and believe on the Saviour and then on your, you might say on your 100th birthday, you're going to be accursed and you're going to die. And there's, if anyone wants to come and talk to me about this after, there's lots of scriptures that point to the death of the unsafe people within the millennium. And this is the one that is um, in the context of the millennium, they're going to be given up until their 100th year to believe. And if they don't believe, they'll be accursed. And then those hundred years, they will have come to the millennium um, saviour. They will give homage to him. They will worship him. They will be made to bow the knee, but they will not be saved. God wants them to come. He gives them a hundred years to believe. Remember, we're in the thousand-year reign of our saviour. So that's one scripture that proves to us that they're going to be accursed, that don't believe. They'll come and worship, but they won't be saved. So now we get to the end of the psalm. The beginning, if we really consider it, is very solemn, it's very deep. It provokes us to live holy lives. But now we're going to get to the end of the psalm. We look there and it says that from one generation after another, a seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord to the generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. These are the people born within the millennial kingdom. That 
This is very important, that he hath done this. So Christ's fame will endure through the thousand-year reign. One generation after another will testify of his excellencies and his mercy. The message of the great work of salvation will pass from one generation to the next, and the majority will, be, will believe. A thousand years, we can't understand it, a thousand years of our Saviour reigning, a thousand years of a revival, a thousand years of no sickness. A thousand years is a long time. And this is how one generation will testify after one generation. And, you know, you could say a generation might be 70 years, 100 years. They're going to be testifying of what he's done. Proclaiming of Christ's righteousness, that finished work of salvation, that finished work of the cross that the psalm begins with. We begin this psalm with that cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That atonement cry. The end of the psalm finishes with, that he hath done this. This is very similar to Jesus' seventh word from the cross, it is finished. One generation after the next generation are going to testify of Christ's finished work of salvation. So that's Psalm 22. I managed to get through it. But we need to glean from this psalm the severity of sin. We can't mess around with sin. We can't mess around with God. I'm, you know, I've read this psalm a few times this past week and I'm convicted to live more righteously. By his stripes were hard, we are healed, but he was whipped because of our sin. Those dislocations was because of our sin. That separation from God was because of our sin. It says in Peter that we must consider to live holy because we don't know when the day is coming, when he's going to come back. We must be as like those wise virgins being filled with the Spirit. And if you're not saved today, you must come to this cross. You must come and believe. Your sin put the Saviour there. Your sin separated him from his Father. Your sin put the Saviour in, in that tormented place of hell, you might say. It was your sin. But you can come and know forgiveness. You can come and call him Abba. You can come and know him as your Saviour. There's no one too old. There's no one too young. If you're not a Christian, or in your, if you're in a severe backsidden state, God is acting over your sin in judgment. God won't answer your prayer. God is going to forsake you. But if you repent and ask for forgiveness, you can know that right relationship with God again. Just have a moment of prayer. Lord, we've considered this psalm. We're thankful. And even that's a weak way of expressing our heart's thoughts. Lord, I pray, Lord, that when we're at our place of work and our place in the, in the world or tomorrow, Lord, or even travelling home or at home, that this psalm, Lord, would be mindful of us. 
We thank you, Lord, for what we've heard this morning about you can heal. And, Lord, that you can come and be forgiven and be healed from that leprosy of sin, spiritual sin. But, Lord, help us to understand the cross more. Lord, we've read that, that Hebrew scripture, considering the cross. We've done what you've told us to do, Lord. We've considered the cross. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you count us worthy to have that position with you as you reign upon high. We pray for those, Lord, that don't know you in this place. Lord, I pray for the children that don't know you and the oldest person, Lord, that may not know you. Pray for the backslidden of heart. Lord, I confess, Lord, that I don't walk worthy. Lord, I confess, Lord, that I want to walk more righteously before you. Lord, help us to really understand the cross. Help us to really understand what you went through. Lord, you was a man. And you paid that price for us. Lord, we thank you. And we pray, Lord, that it would be with us continually, that we'd have a heart's condition of thankfulness because of what you did for us. Lord, we pray that you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.